0: Welcome to the MacauCast episode 7. Looking forward to having another great discussion with you guys, Han and Eric. Welcome back. But in addition to my two co-hosts, we have a a guest today. Seth, welcome to the MacauCast. Why don't you tell folks... uh, First off, welcome. And second... Thank you. (laughs) Why don't you tell folks uh, who you are and and what you do?
1: And why they should bother listening to my opinion at all. Sure. Um, Seth Miller, I'm a traveler. I have been sort of making a living off of traveling and writing about my adventures for the past decade. Uh, and I've, it was an interesting situation. I had a real job. I mostly enjoyed it and then asked my boss for additional vacation instead of a raise one year. And they were very confused and eventually said no. And I decided I still wanted to travel more. So I decided to travel more. Uh, and I've made, uh, a living ever since. I mostly focus on sort of the technical stuff behind the scenes on airplanes, so entertainment systems, internet on airplanes, which is not at all what we're going to talk about today, unless you ask me about it. But because of that, I find myself also going all over the world and flying on different airlines and different airplanes and visiting different places, including Hong Kong and Macau. So here we are. Excellent.
0: Um, I actually might ask you about stuff on the technical stuff on the airplanes, because that sounds interesting to me. Um, uh, But yeah, let's... uh, Let's just jump in to talk a little bit about Hong Kong and and Macau. So we've talked quite a bit on this show about visiting Macau, the trip that we are collectively going to be all in Macau at the same time in the next, uh, well, (laughs) weeks now, uh, coming up pretty soon. But one of the things we haven't talked about very much is Hong Kong. And you know, for many folks that visit Macau. They will come through Hong Kong International Airport in many cases. not You don't have to. There's other ways to do it, but many will. And I think for a lot of folks, whereas our trip, or at least for me, is very much Macau uh, with a little bit of Hong Kong, for a lot of folks, it's going to be the other way around, right? They're going to be going to visit Hong Kong, and they might go to Macau for a day or two, depending on how things work out. Let's talk about Hong Kong and some of the stuff that folks might want to might want to do. I I'm coming at this from the perspective of listeners that I think in many cases are familiar with domestic US travel. Many are, you know, fans of Las Vegas and and perhaps other casino destinations like Atlantic City, but many have not been to to Hong Kong or Macau. So, I think that's at least the perspective that that I'm that I'm thinking to the lens with which to uh, to look through this stuff. I guess we'll just start with uh, some of the simple stuff. You've Seth, you've been to, to Hong Kong, I think, multiple times from what I understand. So what do you think about Hong Kong as a destination?
1: I like it. I think, you know, if you're start, if especially for people who haven't really left the United States before, if you're starting off with that's your first Asia destination, it, it can be a good one. Uh, enough people speak English. Everything is well signed. Everything is sort of relatively clean and easy. It's not quite as sterile as Singapore, uh, which is also an interesting city, but is terribly, you know, oh, too clean in many ways for me. But you know what you get in Hong Kong is a nice collection of the shifting culture, shifting food, shifting all of those things, but relatively accessible. The transit system still works really well. It's Again, everything has English signage around it, so that makes the visits easier. Um, you know, but there is still the opportunity if you want it to sort of head down some side alleyways and see a little bit of the underbelly, a little bit of the history or historical sort of uh, architecture and some of those other things. So it's for me is always a good way to break up a trip into Asia. Um, and you know, along with what you guys were talking about, you can stop there for an overnight, a day, a two or two. I mean, you could spend lots of time there. I I'd rarely do. Uh, Just because I rarely spend a lot of time anywhere. But getting through uh, into Asia, and especially into the Macau-Hong Kong pairing, I would say Hong Kong, is, in my view, is a little easier, uh, certainly to understand and experience as someone from the outside coming in. I think you touched on something
0: that I think is uh, a potential barrier for a lot of folks that I talk to about this stuff. They think, uh, especially when they haven't visited um, Asia at all, they're pretty worried about stuff like language barrier and the like and not being able to, you know, especially if they don't speak any of the local languages, not being able to, you know, read road signs and whatnot. And, you know, as you said it's not really the case in Hong Kong I mean, I'm sure you could find ways to to get confused and lost and whatnot but it, it's it as you said well signed and, and English is very prevalent
1: yeah absolutely I mean all the road signs everything signs in the train stations in the airport all that is all English everywhere so they they understand that aspect of their sort of visitor base and it, it is a global melting pot type of city it's one of the sort of major financial centers of the world which means you know Dirty money comes from all over, and those people need to find a language to speak in, and it's usually English. Right. It's um, and clean money, but dirty money.
2: <laughs> it seems like it's like training wheels uh, for Asia if, for people who have never been there. Like if 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 you were coming from an English speaking part of the world and you and you came to Asia for the first time, I I would. Probably recommend most people go to Hong Kong first, maybe Singapore. But like you said, Seth, it it is pretty sterile there. Um, And uh, that was my experience. And from North
1: America, an extra four hours on a
0: plane. Oh, sure.
2: Yeah.
1: As far as uh,
0: getting to Hong Kong, I mean, most folks will probably, if they were going explicitly traveling there, would probably fly from, uh, you know, most major American cities, I think, fly direct to, to Hong Kong. Uh, or without too much trouble, but that's not the only way to get there. Uh, and I was listening to I think a recent-ish episode of, of your podcast, and forgive me, I can't recall if it was you or, or your uh, your guest slash co-host, but talking about
1: coming in on a train and that experience was that you? It, that was me. Um, it it was bizarre. I, I actually <laughs> like it. This is the. It was not the first time I've done the overnight trains in China. So we. Uh, on one of the other groups, uh, one of the podcasts I do is called Dot Lines, Dots, Lines, and Destinations. Um, well, feel free to listen, and I'll see if I can beg these guys to put a link in the show notes. But uh, <laughs> we, we went to Hong Kong for dinner back in October, and I decided to get there by flying from Boston to Beijing, and then taking the overnight train from Beijing down to Hong Kong. And that's a very, very controversial new project. They have high-speed rail that comes from the mainland, uh Guangzhou into Hong Kong, uh, into Kowloon, not not on the island. But they, the way they structured the deal, the controversy is the way they structured the deal, the train station property, parts of it are considered uh, Chinese mainland China government owned, and parts of it are not. And so the fact that part of Hong Kong now is considered mainland China property is super, super touchy subject. Uh, I was admiring the architecture, and some guys on Twitter got really mad at me for not, you know, demanding that China leave, and I just, I can't care that much. Um, (laughs) I I certainly understand why they care, and it is a big, significant change, but that's not my, neither my politics nor my position to make arguments for. I my obsession with Macau
0: has led me to become a semi regular leader reader of the Southern uh, Chinese Morning Post, and so I remember yeah. many editorials on this topic, talking about how it was the end of the, the Basic Law, which is like their mini constitution, and decrying yeah. this uh, the, this um, this whole setup. Which is it's interesting to see that you actually got some pushback from folks on Twitter.
1: Yeah, um, what's it, but what's interesting about the setup is I think it's the bottom three floors are considered China, and as you arrive. You know, I came in from China. It works both directions, obviously. But as you arrive, at one point you clear immigration and whatnot. And then there's literally a line, like a tile marker on the floor. It it reminds me of if you remember driving through the uh, Midtown Tunnel into Manhattan from New Jersey. There was that line or the Holland. I forget which. But there's a line in the tiles that says, like, you're in New York, you're in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Same kind of thing, except you're in China, you're in Hong Kong. SAR, And so they, they literally mark it on the floor. And, I t- you know, obviously, like many other people, I was there within the first month or so of it opening, so I took the picture yeah. of crossing the border. But it was a really, really neat way to do it. The overnight trains are high-speed rail. You know, within China is insanely good and relatively cheap and clean and nice and quiet and smooth and all of those other things. So it was... Uh, it's a nice ride. You have to... That's an, That one mainland china is a little harder with the english the train stations are okay but uh i definitely get on those trains and then don't talk to anyone for 12 hours until i get off uh (laughs) and have figured out where i'm supposed to be but yeah it was uh it was a really neat thing to do um the caveat to that is it requires a visa to visit china right and that is uh complicated and expensive so uh if you're only going to do it just the one trip uh, I wouldn't recommend going that path, uh, but if you happen to have the Chinese visa anyways and want to have a little bit more of an adventure, it was a—it's a really nice train ride. The sleepers on the trains are comfortable. Like, I—you know—I definitely enjoyed sleeping that night that, more than I did the night prior, which was in coach on a Delta airplane. So, one actually let let me lay down.
2: My understanding is that you can go through mainland China without a visa in certain circumstances. But you're, you're talking sure. about like ha- leaving Beijing on a train, so that's why you needed that visa, right?
1: Right, so the, the transit without visa rules for China, generally speaking, it's three days. It's either 24 hours, 72 hours, or I think some cities are up to seven days now. But you have to come and go from the same city, or in some cases, city or airport plus cruise port are combined. Mm-hmm. Um, But in this case, I flew into Beijing and then took the train sufficiently far away that I was in a different region. So it was no longer considered a transit. It was considered a visit.
2: And why do you have a visa then? I mean, obviously, it wasn't for just this little uh, dumpling run that you had, right? No, (laughs)
1: it was not. Uh, No, I got my visa several years ago. I have visited mainland China a few times as well. Um, I think when I originally got it, it was for the inaugural 787 flights. Uh, which would have put them five or six years ago. I don't have my passport on me to check it right now, but it was, I went to Tokyo to fly on the 787 on its third day of commercial service. I couldn't get there in time for day one. And the way I found a cheap fare was Seattle to Beijing with a stopover of three days in Tokyo on the way home. So I I needed the visa for that Beijing trip and I applied for a multi-entry visa and got it and let me lets me go back. So it it was not a situation where I necessarily, you know, planned on going back a lot, but I knew I needed it for the first time and so I applied for a 10 year uh, visa and got it. And so I can sort of come and go as a tourist as I please.
0: You mentioned, uh, paraphrasing, I think what you said, the process of getting that visa for China was, I think you said expensive and pain in the ass or some, deri- yes. uh, some derivative of that. What is that
1: process like? Are, there, are you standing in a very long line at some consulate someplace? Uh, what's the process like? Generally, yes. Uh, I did it in New York. And so one of the interesting things about the Chinese visa process is it's different depending on which consulate or embassy you apply at. <laughs> And they have rules about where you live determining which of the U.S. consulates you're supposed to apply at. Uh, So if, you know, I was on a long-term vacation in San Francisco, but because I live in New Hampshire, they would have insisted that I go to whichever New Hampshire is for, as opposed to using the California one, potentially. Um, I've talked my way around that in Brazil, in the Brazilian consulate once. I'm not so sure the Chinese would be uh, as amenable to bending those rules, but the... Uh, China process was they wanted explicit details of hotels and airfare and all these things for the first trip. And then once it's issued, like, they don't care. But uh, in my case, it was stand in line for probably more than an hour or, you know, standing or sitting in a waiting area, but it was easily more than an hour to drop it off. And, you know, which you have to talk to the person and do the thing. And then again, when you go back to pick it up a few days later, an equal amount of time. And it's it's frustrating you I had a flexible schedule uh, so it let me do it myself. Most folks I know especially for China use a visa processing service and pay someone else $100 to not have to stand in that line and it's if I didn't you know, if I had any job or anything other than what my current life was at the time when I was doing that I would have just paid the $100. Right. It is a much easier and more reasonable thing to do than in my case schlepping over to 12th Avenue in Manhattan and standing outside that crazy building and you know figuring it all out
2: yeah hey, I, I figure it's kind of it might be worth it in some scenario where even for uh yeah I mean you, you do this for professional reasons but for personal reasons because like there's so many deals that I see to, to mainland China and you can jump from there to, to Hong Kong or other places throughout Asia if you wanted to and it seems like if you are going to China and they don't yeah, and you're not connecting right away, like sometimes you need that visa or they won't even let you board. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, and so the you can in theory buy a round trip super cheap whatever to Beijing and then separately buy Beijing to Hong Kong or Macau. And those are a valid transit without visa uh itineraries. The challenge you'll run into is sometimes the U.S. airline will, won't, they you know, if you buy them as separate tickets, the U.S. airline where you're boarding, or whatever airline where you're boarding in the U.S., won't know about the other flight yeah. and will insist that you need a visa because you're stopping in China. And you can fight with them and explain that you have onward travel and the bookings and whatnot. In theory, they should, not in theory, they should just let you board. That is what the rules were designed for. Uh, the... Chinese immigration authorities absolutely uh, honor it that way. Um, and I will put the caveat out there for all my experience and everything else that I've seen to date, but I'm clearly not a Chinese immigration officer, so, you know, good luck. Uh, but <laughs> you, you should be fine. Um, but, you know, there's... I've never heard of anyone having a problem once they get on board, but I have definitely heard of people having to fight with airline agents saying, no, 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 I don't need a boarding, I don't need a visa. Look, I have all these other tickets. And so... If it's from a single airline or a single booking, it's much easier. If it's a multi- multiple airline situation, that gets a lot more complicated.
2: Are there any? Uh, are the U.S. carriers any worse about that than, say, you know, Cathay or uh, like Asian carriers? Or does it, it doesn't matter? Like, long as long as it's it's from the U.S., that's where you could have a problem. Is that is that right?
1: That that's been my experience. I I can't you know that's also where I am. So yeah. I, uh those are the people I hear about. I I would not be surprised to learn that some people in Europe have had similar challenges sometimes. Um, but you know, I a lot of the staff are contract staff at the U.S. end, anyways. Sure. So it's not like you know the person working for Cathay Pacific might be working for Delta in the morning and Cathay in the evening, mm. um,
2: depending yeah, on. Where. I was jealous of your uh, your train ride. I, I think that's a cool way to to come into town. Yeah, but. Now,
1: the, the trains really are nice when you you come from a world of Amtrak and New Jersey Transit and Long Island Railroad and then go to China and you know walk down the platforms and see twenty gorgeous high-speed trains lined up all ready to go i mean the i did overnight from beijing to guangzhou and it's four or five hundred passengers per train if i remember correctly so 500 like sleeping bunks and there were six trains that all left within 30 minutes oh man wow every five minutes just another train going and they all took slightly different routes and had a couple different stops along the way Literally, I got on by the time we'd made our first or second stop, you know, a couple stops early on in the trip in like sort of suburbia. And then most of the, the end of the trip is just one long run. It was I was asleep. I mean, I also had just come off a of red eye from Detroit. So I, was, I had a good reason to be exhausted and dead on the train. But I I slept great.
0: I thought it was interesting. I, if I recall correctly, you were saying that they actually run them slower on the overnight routes to let people sleep. Like it doesn't actually take that long to get there.
1: Yeah, so those trains run at a maximum speed that they can do. I think Beijing to Guangzhou or Beijing to uh, Shanghai in like five and a half or six hours, and the overnights they run them a little more efficiently. Uh, con- you know, energy consumption wise, they can slow them down so it's an, a, a ten or twelve hour ride. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite half not quite half speed, but it's close, and it lets it's still super fast. Um, right, I think the my trip was over. Uh, 1500 miles and it was still like 10 hours. Wow. So, but they can do them in six if they need to.
0: Very cool. All right. So steering back to Hong Kong as someone that has been there multiple times. Uh, this is a, sh- a very broad question, but <clears throat> what sorts of things would you direct uh, tourists to that are coming
1: to visit Hong Kong? Eat, eat everything, eat all of the food you see on the street and don't look back. Uh, Is my short version. That's my answer, honestly, to a lot of different places is just to go and find all the food. But I love the street food in Hong Kong, the dumplings, and, you know, sort of, you know, Han referenced the dumpling run, which is what I called my trip when we went back in October, just because all I did was eat dumplings the whole trip, even in Beijing. But truly, what I find is in Hong Kong, especially, there's sort of little kiosks. It's less cooked out on the street as opposed to little kiosks and shop fronts. But you get, like, truly little steamed buns everywhere um, and just really good options. I have absolutely walked up in, you know, my point-and-pray method of dining of this thing looks interesting <laughs> and probably not too fuzzy or crunchy. Let's see what it's, you know, what let's see what's inside. Um, and done that, and, you know, it's, you, know, you walk, I, that is a situation where you need a little cash. Uh, it's not a necessarily a credit card-only environment, but walk up and, you know, order a lot of the food what my most recent trip this dumpling run trip back in October I decided I was going to try not just the soup dumplings which I'm a big fan of but uh, I was actually it was right around when Hong Kong Airlines had made a mistake on some business class tickets and a lot of people were flying to Hong Kong for cheap and their social media team was doing its best to be cool and engaging and helpful and get people happy about flying you know on Hong Kong Airlines not just flying cheap. And was talking about restaurants to go to, you know, was willing to do anything and provide advice. And so I reached out to them, was like, hey, I'm coming to town. And I wasn't on the mistake fair, but whatever. What are your thoughts about, you know, good things to eat while I'm in there? And they gave me some suggestions of restaurants. And so in that case, I basically picked a genre of food. And was like, okay, I'm going to see if I can try, you know, these like waffle things three different places. And... You know, looked it up online, used Yelp, and there's a local localized version of Yelp now that I'm blanking on the name of, but when you search for whatever Hong Kong restaurant reviews, it's pretty obvious who they are. And you end up with just, you know, a, it's a similar sort of situation. You get a, dots on a map, you pick a few. I, try, I tended to cluster mine relatively close together, but maybe spacing them out so I could have 20 or 30 minutes walking between, you know, two or three restaurants so I could get a little bit of a rest along the way, let my stomach stretch back out after I filled it. But that sort of thing is absolutely my favorite. And then use that as a means to get into some of the neighborhoods. You know, I mentioned early on the sort of contrast between the new and the old. There's a lot of sort of communist style concrete block construction. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's probably not communist, but uh, may as well have been. Um, you know, that, just that terrible, brutalist construction style. And then giant new glass buildings that go up. You know dozens of stories for the new banks and such and it's just getting to walk at ground level amongst all of that you you know the air conditioners mounted on the outsides of the buildings and laundry lines and this and that everywhere it's it's just an architecturally very very different from anywhere in the united states and i really enjoy exploring and seeing that and then using the food as my guide slash motivation to get from site to site and um you know i have my, I have my phone working, data roaming, working there. Um, whether you use Google Fi or T-Mobile, it's free. If you have another plan, you'll pay a little. Um, but there's plenty of cell service there. So, like, you can't get too lost, which is way better than the first time I visited. Uh, and worse. I kind of like getting lost sometimes. But in this case, it's it just makes it easy and interesting and fun to give use the food as a basis for my wanderings, I think, is what I would say. Hey,
2: Seth, are you... Are you... Like, or, or are you going mostly around in Kowloon or Central, or or I mean, where are you going? Hong Kong Islands, or do you go to the New Territories? Like, are you all over Hong Kong, or a,
1: a little bit all over? I, I I generally tend to focus on the Kowloon and uh, I'm sorry, Kowloon is easier if you at the southern end of it and walking around there. There's some it's there's plenty to do, um, and you you won't run out. Um, there's the Chung King Mansions, which is like. The stupidest people have turned apartment buildings into flop houses of uh, dorm style sleeping and whorehouses and lots of other things all back like right off the main road in these giant sort of apartment complexes. Is that where and S- that's... Snowden
2: was hiding out or, or, <laughs> or, or, or am I mistaken? I don't know.
1: Uh, I, I That is one part I don't uh, particularly vi- explore okay. but everything else in the Kowloon <laughs> in the Kowloon area um, I have found enjoyable just to walk around like that. And there's big parks and things um, in addition to the sort of giant, huge uh, architecture and buildings and such. So that's a good mix. Um, there's also a metro line that runs up and down the center of line, Center Avenue of Kowloon Underground that makes getting back and forth from end to end easy. so you can like walk one way and train the other. Uh, is nice. Um, I do like the central area. That's where you get the big bank buildings. And then on that's on Hong Kong Island. Back and forth, sort of east west. At the top of Hong Kong Island, you get uh, Wan Chai, which is one of the big bar districts, and I think Shen Wan is the other one. I'm sure I'm saying all these horribly wrong, but that's what you get for getting a gringo talking about uh, Hong Kong. And but in those areas, um, they really are just sort of you know a little bit to the west. Is that it depends on what has changed you know month to month and year to year um, things literally do change that quickly there but there's like the mid levels they have these escalators and moving walkways that go up the hill on Hong Kong Island to make it easier because the the north side of Hong Kong Island which is what faces the harbor um, and where sort of like all the money is um, there are sort of terraced buildings. And so that you go up into these mid-levels before you get to the top of the peak, which is the mountain, what they call it. You have all these buildings, all these shops, all these restaurants, and that goes sort of from Wan Chai to Central and Xinhuan. That whole area, they have these, they call them the escalators, but they're like moving walkways, a mix of moving walkways and escalators, and you can sort of ride them all the way up and ride them all the way back down and get out whenever you want and like walk, you know, as far as you want one way or the other on one of the sort of parallel roads and then come back to the escalators and move again so that's another just sort of interesting thing they've done i mean outdoor escalators in in and of themselves are very interesting to me but that they've done this to be able to move their population up and down this giant hill more easily and to be able to it's to get people to and from work basically but you know we can use them as tourists too you touched on this a bit, uh, but as far as getting around in Hong Kong, <clears throat> I
0: mean, I don't have a ton of Hong Kong experience in the the bit that I do. I found it very walkable, and I did ride on the um, underground rail stuff. Uh, but you know, obviously there's the the harbor, so there's little ferries you can take across the harbor. There's, I presume, uh, I didn't use any taxis, but I presume they have taxis like everywhere else in the world. Um, yeah. What what did you find? How did you find it to get around? Easy, difficult? Different modes of
1: transportation better than others? Sure. So, uh, to and from the airport, uh, I do the airport express high speed train. It is relatively affordable. If you're doing just a day trip, they have a super cheap return fare. Um, if you're doing an over, if you go more than twenty four hours, it's like a tiny bit more expensive. It's a couple bucks more, but. It's still reasonably priced for what it is, and it's 20 or 30 minutes from the terminal into Central, and then from Central, you can transfer to the MTR, uh, or at Kowloon you can transfer to the MTR, and that's what they call their subway, and go sort of mostly everywhere. Uh, it is it is a very efficient system, it works pretty well, they actually just added a new line that goes all the way to the south side of Hong Kong Island, which when I went I had to take the bus to get down there uh, the first time. So. There's some interesting um, it's just nice that they have the new one available. but the buses and subway system is very efficient and very nice. It gets very crowded because it's a crowded place and you know rush hour especially expect that you'll be crammed into these cars, but they come pretty quickly um, and they're great. The taxis are pretty cheap and like ubiquitous. they're everywhere. You got to deal with uh, a little bit potentially language challenges of saying where you're going sometimes, and making sure that you have the cash to pay for them.
2: Uh, Uber works there, so if you're into that sort of thing, is Uber still working there? I thought they had to pull out, or maybe I'm mistaken. Did they? I, I don't. It, I don't know.
1: I thought they were when I was there back in October. Okay. Um, if if Uber had to pull out, my guess is they were replaced by Grab or one of the other Asian ones. That could have been the deal with. It. it was Hong Kong one of the markets where Uber was bought out by Grab and gave them the the business. Um, I could I, I could be well, wrong.
2: I don't know. I know they yeah, were and, pulling out. And Wakao. I easily could be too. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, and then the other thing, and you mentioned it, the ferry across the harbor. The Star Ferry is probably the best, cheapest tourist attraction in Hong Kong. It's like 25 or 30 cents to ride and you get your 15 minutes back and forth or not even that long and it's a great little harbor cruise. You don't you obviously don't spend a ton of time out on the harbor but you can run them, you know, get on board, board quickly when they open up. You get a window seat and you literally get are right there and get to explore and see the whole thing for pennies. And I that is absolutely one of the things I do every time. I mean, one of my trips to Hong Kong was an eight hour layover where probably shouldn't tell my wife this, but we easily could have done a two hour layover instead. (laughs) And I insisted on doing the long one and so that a she could see a little bit of downtown Hong Kong and B so we could get some dumplings. And (laughs) we, so we, we landed in the Hong Kong airport, went to the lounge, took a shower and then had to sort of fight our way out and said, Oh no, we actually are just in transit. We want to go out now. Um, made that work uh, somewhat miraculously and Took the, took the train in. The train ends at the Hong Kong station, and we went to the Tim Ho Wan dumplings that are right there. Had amazing dumplings. Got out, walked over to the pier, which is also right there. Took the Star Ferry across. Walked from there over to the Kowloon uh, train station, including a sort of walk along the waterfront, which is a little out of the way, but uh, there's the waterfront, and the, they call it the Avenue of the Stars. It's sort of there. Just the... the And towards the Intercontinental Hotel there. It's the waterfront on the Kowloon side. And then from there looped around and went to the train station and went back to the airport. It was three or four hours and just a ton of fun. And we got to see, basically, in that little tiny bit of time, you can actually see what I would consider like the highlights. The only other thing that is sort of, two other things that are super, I'll say, first-time tourist highlights are going to the top of Hong Kong Peak and the Giant Buddha, in uh, Lantau Island
0: I on this upcoming trip on the way back uh, where our flight doesn't leave Hong Kong until I think 6 p.m. or something like that so I'm trying to figure out you know leaving Macau early in the morning taking the ferry back or whatever uh, or the bridge mm-hmm. well I guess we'll see but then what to do trying to try and maximize that like last little bit of Hong Kong time so that's actually your, your uh, description there is very useful for me trying to figure out how much I can fit in with still not being super stressed about you know making it to the airport.
1: Yeah, the, the only thing you got to stress about there is schlepping your bags with you. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: we we cheated when we did that trip. We had uh, full-size carry-ons with our stuff, but because we had gone to the lounge first, when I, I basically negotiated with the lounge staff that they would let me forget my bag for a couple hours. And they said <laughs> they, they're not going to watch it, but they also won't report it.
2: Nice. And
1: so if someone else steals it, it's not their fault, but they're not going to call the airport authorities and... Right you know, report me as having abandoned a bag and watch, and then the bomb team comes right. and blows it up. So uh, we just, we literally left them under a table in the Thai Airways lounge. Uh, so that worked really nicely. But uh, I'm sure there's, is uh, bag storage at the airport if you are willing to stop out there first, yeah. or, um, I guess I was going to say you could do the check bag thing, but you can't do that because you'll take the different ferry. so that's not going to work.
0: Yeah, I did a little research, and I guess there's a couple of options. I need to figure out what actually makes the most sense, but... uh I don't know. I, I definitely want to try and squeeze out as much um, as much as we can out of the time that we have, and I think at that point we'll we'll be fine leaving Macau. Not need to spend another you know half day there or whatever, and it'd be more fun to spend that time in Hong Kong.
2: Yeah, I'm go- I'm gonna put some uh, my luggage in a storage facility somewhere. I think in Central um, at one of the train stations, and you just have to yeah, pay I'm- a couple of Hong Kong dollars, and they'll, they'll watch it for a couple hours for you. Uh Eric you're you are going to spend a couple of days in Hong Kong after we leave is that right
3: Yeah I've re I've uh, kind of redesigned the trip a little bit so I'm going to have two and a half days in Hong Kong on the back end um I convinced a couple of buddies uh to come join me uh the way it worked out it looked like you guys were all leaving before me um and I don't think I need more than 4 days in uh Macau so uh, I'll have the first four in Macau and then the next two and a half in Hong Kong. Very cool. Very cool. I mean, I'm I'm
2: jealous of you, Eric, in the sense that uh, you're going to see all this with fresh eyes. Um, I, I remember when I went there, I was just blown away by everything I'd seen. So, I mean, Seth, you're probably just, I don't know, you've been everywhere. So I don't know if this stuff impresses you anymore. But.
1: <laughs> you know, it, it honestly, it still does for the most part. I, some places do. Hong Kong is one of them. The... The just how much they manage to cram into the tiny space that they have, and how it's constantly refreshing and constantly growing is still amazing to me. Um, I still love love it every time. This this most recent. I mean, we talk about that train station and the crazy sort of China battle there, but the reason the thing the thing I posted that drew the ire of everyone of this guy on Twitter was I actually on top of it. There's an observation deck, and so there's a fancy hotel bar right nearby that has, you know, a rooftop. I think it's the W or the something like that has a like a... one Or one of the buildings associated with the W in that complex right there has a rooftop bar. And then this building has sort of a rooftop bar as well, the Sky 100 Hong Kong observation deck. Instead of that paying to go up there, which is much taller, certainly, but I just went up to the top of the train station, and it was pretty darn cool it's outdoors and so if it's you're sweaty um you're gonna be sweaty but it was uh still a really neat thing just the architecture of that and that's something that's new and you know next time i go back there's gonna be something else that was new because the the city continues to develop and evolve so rapidly there's always something changing like that
0: I certainly haven't been paying attention long enough to have a good feel for this. But one of the things that I think is really interesting to, to watch and continue to watch is the influence of the Chinese central government on Hong Kong. I mean, obviously, they made their deal not to allow them to retain their uh, status for you know a certain amount of time. But clearly, a lot of the locals are nervous about the sort of creeping change that's coming uh, I don't know. I think that that whole experiment
1: is fascinating, and be interesting to see how that ends up. Absolutely, and I, I agree with you. There are, yeah. I think you you have to be probably a little more in tune with the local vibe than I get to see a lot of it. But there are times where you see little things or you hear little things about how the situation is evolving, and it it becomes somewhat obvious that that's happening.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'd love to get your take on Macau stuff as well because I know you've been there too. But before we before we leave Hong Kong, I want to make sure I'm not cutting off Eric or Han if they've got anything else they want to they
2: want to chime in on. I just want to say, you, Seth, you were right. Uh, Uber's still there. Uh, apparently, there was a taxi driver uh, march, anti Uber march in Hong Kong in January. So, <laughs> they're um, th- you know they're threatened. So by if them.
1: they're still protesting it, then we know they're still yeah, right exactly. <laughs> there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, got it. Yeah, got it. And, and there is bag storage at Hong Kong Station, which I've shared the notes, with the, the link with these guys, so you guys can put it in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you for that. Well, let's talk about Macau. So
0: you visited at least once. I don't know. You can tell us, but um, I'm curious to get your, uh, you know, your general uh, vibe on Macau, what you, what you think, especially, you know, as someone that's traveled um, to yeah. Hong Kong and everywhere else. What's your take on Macau?
1: Can you guys explain to me what the hell is going on there? <laughs> in what sense? <laughs> uh, so I've been twice. My first was a decade ago. I did it as a day trip from Hong Kong. The second was two years ago and I spent a couple nights there.
2: Um, Where did you stay?
1: I knew you were going to ask me that. I stayed actually on the older side and it's I'm pulling it up. I had it up but I had to scroll my map over to uh, Hong Kong. Um, I stayed... I will tell you in a minute when I pull that back up. Um, but I I stayed in the old part, not in the new resorts. Uh, there's a something right across from the sands.
2: Uh, okay. Um, okay. Okay.
1: Okay. Uh, it's called like something stupid, like Waterfront or uh, Oceanus, or that was a casino. Uh, right. The Harbor View, maybe? I don't know. I know. Th- yeah, Harbor View. It's the Harbor View. I stayed in the Harbor which um, I booked it like on Hotels.com, stupidly cheap, and it was completely clean and fine. It was certainly not fancy or nice, but it got the job done. Um, and it happened to be at a time when the, the cost for going to Hong Kong to... I was supposed to actually meet friends in Hong Kong that weekend. I, so I, I was in Singapore. I flew to Macau, had planned to do one night, then take the ferry over and do another night. And the cost of hotels in Hong Kong was so much that I actually called my friends and told them I couldn't come. And just stayed in Macau an extra night. <laughs> so... You know, it's it's actually not that far from the Mandarin Oriental and the Wynn um, and some of those things on the sort of the other side of Old Macau, but it's definitely still on that first island, and you don't get down into the new new stuff uh, further south, and that which is where, where the Venetian and the other Wynn and the Parisian are. So, I I liked staying up in that part because when I wanted to go explore, I could go actually into the old town of macau and walk around and see like the weird portuguese stuff happening um and there are still like all the signs are still in portuguese on the streets plus i assume it's mandarin um chinese right well forgive me if i'm getting that one wrong it's either mandarin or cantonese
2: right yeah yeah i well i'm korean but i don't know but i (laughs) it's (laughs) china it's chinese (laughs) yeah no um but yes, so
1: whatever you get the Chinese there. It's but you get both, and some of the restaurants still have the Portuguese on their menus. I am not at all convinced that anyone working at any of the restaurants speaks Portuguese. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was one of the funny things because, as you said, right, the
0: street signs, and actually, I think it must be a, a local reg that all of the yeah. emergency signage is also include in Portuguese. Also, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I don't. I didn't see a <laughs> single person that I that I would have guessed at least was
1: spoke Portuguese. <laughs> and, and like it's entirely possible that the people who live there and who are you know Chinese still speak Portuguese. Right? Sure, there's sure. No, shouldn't judge that way. Maybe, if they, maybe the schools still teach it. I don't know. But it is just, it was really strange to sort of see that. And even like the restaurants trying to still have the historical Portuguese influence. You get the egg custard tarts and like a lot of that stuff which are delicious. I would eat those all day long and I did. Again, eat everything. There's lots of little shops in the old town that you can, as you're walking through you can just pick more up. But it was like, are these really still a local delicacy? Or is this now just this thing we do to keep the tourists happy? And I just don't know. And it's a weird place to me.
0: Yeah, that's a good question, especially about the... the. Egg tarts, especially, right? I mean, they—they they, if you look up any kind of uh, what to do in Macau, I'm sure like number one or number two on the list is to get an egg tart, right? So it's—it's it's become so closely associated with it that uh, it's a good question whether it is you know actually part of uh, still part of local custom
1: or whether yeah. it's uh, more tourist service. The—the the only thing I can think, and it just came to me now, is like I was going to say, and you still do that in Portugal too. Like you go to Lisbon or Porto or any of the towns in Portugal, you get egg tarts because they're everywhere there, but. They don't really have them in Brazil, and they don't really have them in Goa, India, which was also a Portuguese colony. Um, hmm. There are still other things. You know, Goa still has a huge... I mean, it's on the water, so it do- still has a huge seafood uh, focus as far as cuisine goes, and it is a more European-style seafood than not. Butter and garlic as opposed to curry uh, for an in India. But and Macau has the seafood. Again, it's on the water, so it makes sense, but with a little bit of an Asian flair. It's... But that you know it's not necessarily that egg tarts still exist in abundance everywhere that portugal
2: once had a colony right. so hmm. i don't know now, did did you uh gamble at all or you're not really a gambler are you i'm not a huge gambler okay. the first trip i did
1: i think so the first trip i took the i literally had no idea what i was doing i i knew i was going to go for the day i took uh grabbed my passport and just left my bags in my original hotel because i know i was coming back that night and took the ferry over, walked out of the ferry terminal, and there's just the lineup of all the shuttle buses. And I was like, "Ah, who's leaving next? Okay, <laughs> you're the you're the one I'm going to." And took a free ride to one of the hotels. Um, and for the life of me, I don't remember which one. If I dig through a pile of photos and souvenirs, I could probably find it. I and actually, I'm not sure if I got one there. I collect the or used to when they were readily available the dollar uh, coins.
2: Sure. Uh, tokens
1: from the um machines from the slot machines yeah and so i have like 30 or 40 of those from various casinos i visited over the years and i believe if if they had them still i'm sure i did try to collect one while i was there but i think i played a couple hands of blackjack and then was like yep there went my 50 or 100 bucks i'm good (laughs) so um and then the second time i did not gamble other than choosing to stay at you know a random hotel i'd never heard of
0: so, uh, given that those experiences, is Macau a place that you think you'll go back to at some point? Or you've sort of been there, done that?
1: If I could figure out what's actually supposed to be going on there, I might go back and try to do it again. But twice now, I've sort of gone and done the walking downtown loop and seen some stuff. And I think I'm done. Um, which is not to say that it was, you know, not worth seeing and experiencing doing. I think that because of how weird and strange and like mixed of the Portuguese and the Chinese and everything else going on there, because of all that, it is absolutely worth going and experiencing the once or twice, but I'm not sure it has more of an appeal to me than just that. And I have now done it twice, so I'm not sure I'm going to go back. Right. Right. Well, there is to,
0: uh, to shill for Macau. Uh, there are uh, some very interesting things to see in the other parts of, uh, of, yeah, that you haven't visited yet that I would de- definitely recommend even you know
1: even non casino oriented
0: stuff There's some some definitely some interesting stuff. That's worth doing
1: for sure Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm sure I didn't do it. You know good or right, but I got <laughs> I got some out of it So I was reasonably comfortable Well, um,
0: I don't know I as far as what's going on in Macau. I can I can only speak for myself. I personally uh, I just find the The fact that Macau is the global casino capital of the world uh, it's sort of fascinating. Just the way that things have the way that things have happened there, what that does to a tiny city slash country, depending on how you want to count it, uh, how it does to their economy, um, and sort of how those things work. Plus, I've always been a sucker for weird casino architecture stuff.
2: Yeah, I also find it fascinating that it could be a kind of focus of uh, us sino relations, you know, just with the casinos there and all the ties with with Trump and the trade war and, and who knows what could happen with with the uh, concessions and I don't know there's there's so many uh fascinating storylines running through Macau um that yes, uh they they have to do with the casinos, but um there's like a l- larger macro story going on there that I find interesting.
0: I have a I have a question that maybe It doesn't sound like you've used it, but maybe you've heard something about it. The bridge that is built uh, between Hong Kong and Macau. um, You know, it's relatively new. I'm curious about it. I don't know if I'm curious enough to try it on this trip, just because the things that I have heard have made it sound sort of confusing to make it work. And I'm traveling with my wife, who... Um, you know, this is her first time in Asia and I just don't know if she, if I want to put her through, like, I have no idea what we're doing. (laughs) This is how this works. I I don't know, but I'm curious about the bridge. I don't know what you've
1: heard about it or if you know folks that have used it. I've, you know, just what I've read online for the most part, general stuff, no one specifically I followed. The surprise to me with it was that they built it without a rail link of any sort and, I just that seems short-sighted and stupid given that all the other rail investment going on in the region um and what what is going on there i don't know if it was an you know a nod to the ferry operators to keep them let them stay in business or something else but uh i i respect and appreciate the engineering involved in building a bridge that long but it sort of Without without a rail operation or anything else, the the risk of getting stuck in stupid traffic uh, makes it far less uh, exciting to me than just taking the ferry, assuming the weather's decent.
2: Right. Well, aren't they going to control how how the traffic flows over there? I mean, they're going to really limit it with licenses and all this other stuff.
1: Yeah, licenses and tolls and stuff. So, but yeah. again, like that that takes away from the value to me as a random consumer. Like I want to go, I don't want to have to. You know, do I have to now book my bus ticket a week in advance because there's so few seats because they're limited that I got shut out, or are the bus tickets going to get super expensive? Is the other right the two ways you control the
2: what? What I don't understand is how you handle the like you know you have your passport are you gonna get checked somewhere in the middle of the bridge and then you, you get off
0: it, you get off twice oh, yeah it's, it's yeah, you have a to get, yeah yeah that's been that, and everything I've read they have made that very clear you have to get off the bus on each side with your passport to clear customs and immigration on both sides ah.
1: you stamp out and then stamp back in that honestly the train station was very similar when when we arrived it was I waited an hour to clear Chinese outbound immigration standing in the hall in Hong Kong there and then 30 seconds to clear into Hong Kong after I, walk, after I walked across that fancy line in the floor. So. Uh, well, that, that, that is normal, but yeah, not good. Yeah, kind of a pain, but I, yeah,
0: exactly. I think it's relatively standard when you're doing that kind of transit. Um, I want to ask you about in flight entertainment systems, because I'm really curious, uh, but I, w- I don't want to cut these guys off if they have other uh, Macau or Hong Kong or other random
2: questions. Eric, you haven't said much this time, so I'm. Curious what you're thinking as we're talking about all this stuff.
3: I'll be honest; we're recording on the weekend. I'm going in and out of mute, making sure the kids are uh, <laughs> staying out of staying out of here. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. So uh, the only question that I had, I guess, besides eating everything, is there anything between Hong Kong and Macau that stands out to you as being this unique experience that uh, somebody who will likely only go one time like that what's the can't miss
1: yeah i i actually think the star ferry and just that waterfront experience in hong kong if you can they do a light show at night um where like all the buildings light up and whatnot um for big big festivals there's uh fireworks as well but you gotta time that right chinese new year usually is the big one um but just the 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 night light festival on the buildings is really neat um and you sort of have to decide if you're going to do that from the ferry or from sitting in the. You want to. You usually want to watch that from the Kowloon side, in my experience. There's just on that big promenade. There's a lot of places and people. There's you know they've put in benches and like stadium seating almost for people to sit and watch it. So I think that is sort of quintessential Hong Kong, and you don't get that many other places. Uh, going up to the top of the peak uh, is also very much a Hong Kong thing. I have to admit, I've never done it. Uh, just timing wise, I never worked it into everything else. I think I was too busy eating to <laughs> spend that time getting up there. I was, you know, there was unlike my pre, like I said, I tried to make you know my dumpling stops every twenty or thirty minutes, and that one was too far out of the way. I've been up there. Um, it is definitely a uh, a
0: sort of not a lot of people's don't miss list. It's really touristy. um so you know just know that going in uh very weather dependent yeah that's a good point i was there on a very nice sunny day it was hot as hell but it was it was a beautiful day i mean it's a great view um but it you know you go up top and there's a really nice view and like a shopping mall
2: hunter did you go up there with on the tram yes okay Yeah. yeah yeah which
0: was also super packed and uh so that kind of thing if you get claustrophobic or whatever depending on how busy that that in our case was super busy so maybe something
3: to watch out for but great view I'm the kind of guy that could go to the Grand Canyon and look (laughs) at it and say wow that's pretty and then 30 seconds later be like all right
2: oh man
3: (laughs) (laughs) so well yeah well it's you know it is it is what it is like a a big trip for a scenic view isn't my bag then Uh, skip skip the peak yeah (laughs) Eric are you gonna be
2: there on a Wednesday I can't I can't remember when you're taking out taking off in Hong Kong?
3: Um, Hong, uh, leaving, I leave Hong Kong on the
2: 18th or 19th. Okay. I can't, okay. I don't know if that's, that's a, a Monday or Tuesday. All right. That's, I, I cause I heard at Wednesday. I think it's Wednesday when they have the horse races. And, uh, I heard that's pretty cool to, to, to go to the horse track and,
3: and yeah, I'd, I'd like to check that out yeah. if, you know, I'm around for it, but
1: yeah. yeah, my, my first trip to Hong Kong was on, was Lunar New Year. Uh, 2008 i think and so i was walking around and wanted they do special races that for the for the holiday and i was trying to get to make that happen i i couldn't get over there with everything else i ended up putting on my schedule which was too bad but it was uh definitely saw like all the guys out there with the newspapers the betting sheets like playing at the off-track betting stuff hanging out it was pretty interesting
0: all right, I'm going to ask you about in, in-flight entertainment cuz Co- I I you, the way that you mentioned it at the beginning of our call made it sound to me like there's an entire world I don't know about because yeah, I didn't realize there was much to talk about there. So I have a software development background, so I'm moderately curious whenever I get on a plane, especially if it's like yep. rebooting and I'm like, "Oh, I see, it's like a 10-year-old version of Linux." Um, yep. but how other than that, I don't really notice much in terms of how the different systems are different between each other uh, or what what's good about, what's bad about them, what the what's coming next in terms of tech? I mean, I, I guess give me a glimpse into this world so I even
1: know what to ask. So, <laughs> sure. So one of the things you alluded to, that's the 10-year-old version of Linux, is a problem. Getting stuff certified to go on airplanes, especially when it's built into the airplane and powered by the airplane and sort of connected to those systems, is really expensive and really hard and takes a long time. Because airplanes are special and we don't want them crashing. So, there's a lot of extra regulations. There's a lot of extra cost. Um, things like the screen in your front of you is certified so that if your head hits it moving with 16 G-force, it will not shatter and cut you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, that costs extra, usually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like just lots of little things like that. But getting it developed can be very hard. Some of the... Uh, companies doing it now have switched to Android mm-hmm. operating system um, because it can be hand- handled more easily. They're also sort of changing their operating system development cycle so that rather than having to rebuild the entire thing every time, there's a core OS and then a UI layer that sits on top of it. And the core OS doesn't upgrade super often, but the other parts can be upgraded without a full re certification. And so it's going to let them be a lot more flexible and dynamic in getting these things done. Now that said, there's still the challenge of you know getting the hardware certified is expensive, and so you know we get new iPads every year or new whatever you know right. Android tablets every 12 to 18 months, six months in some cases, just depends on you know which cycle you're on. It's still slowed slower development, but the uh, the good example of that is Delta's new A220, which literally just flew in the last couple of weeks. I don't know when this podcast comes out, but uh, First Flights were on February 7th. They have a Android-based operating system that is actually a tablet using Wi-Fi to transmit all the data back and forth, and they're still plugged in at the seat, so there's still some wiring into the seat, but it's using wireless for a lot of the data moving around, and with some reduced wiring, and because they're using these commercial tablets that they manage to find a set that your head won't, you know, destroy at high speeds, they think that they're going to save a lot of money over time. Interesting. So, yeah, and they, they, in that case, they had to sort of match the experience of the rest of the Delta fleet in terms of what it looks like and how it works, and they did. So, it's pretty cool.
0: So, Do the airlines, do they do the design and development of these things themselves? Are there outside vendors that the different airlines
1: buy from and basically, like, reskin with their stuff? Or how much, how does that work? It is almost entirely done by third-party vendors. Uh, Panasonic, Avionics is, uh, obviously you've heard of Panasonic, they have an avionics group which handles all their airplane stuff. And so... Uh, internet and entertainment systems and then a few other things as well Uh, there's a company called talus which is a huge french multi like multinational they do everything from building satellites to making entertainment systems Uh, uh used to be collins aerospace which is another giant sort of mega corporation just sold its system to a company that used to be called digicore Um, which, if you ever flew Alaska Airlines and got, like, the little tablets on board Mm -hmm. a long time ago, those were DigiCore tablets. Um, I think United Airlines used to give them away in PS, also, back when United Airlines had a PS service on their (laughs) old 757s to JFK. Um, But they've now bought some of the embedded entertainment systems as well. So there's three or four sort of big companies that own most of the market, and then, on top of that, there are a couple other players. So Lufthansa has a Group There's the Lufthansa Group that owns five airlines, I think, plus Lufthansa Systems and Lufthansa Technic and a couple other things. So Lufthansa Technic does their maintenance work and will install your entertainment system for you. Lufthansa Systems actually builds some of the streaming entertainment systems. So it's basically a web server plus hard drive in a box or, you know, an access point plus hard drive in a box. That you stream movies from. Mm -hmm. And Lufthansa will sell you that. They call it, Lufthansa Systems will sell you that. They call it Board Connect. Um, Delta's, the one I was talking about before with their new sort of wireless one, this is Delta's first foray into that market. Um, It was architected by GoGo as well Uh um, for that specific model on the A220s. And then for the other airplanes where Delta's installing it, they have a new group called Delta Flight Products which is one of their many subsidiaries and sort of like Lufthansa systems, it's going to start making this stuff and selling it to other airlines. So I think the answer to your question is yes, uh, <laughs> but it's, mo- it's mostly third parties with a couple airlines sort of doing it themselves. Interesting.
0: I saw... American announced a deal with Apple Music where yep. you can stream Apple Music and I guess not use any kind of without having to buy data I believe. So Correct. how does that work? Do they are they like caching the 10,000 most popular songs on a hard drive in the on the plane and then Nope. How does that work?
1: They they have basically whitelisted the Apple server. Okay. So when you log in um you if you're Device and it's the same way they do. Like you can get you know free access to AmericanAirlines.com or right. free access to Delta.com or whatever. They can pick URLs to whitelist, and so they've whitelisted the Apple Music section of the Apple site, and they hope that they've done it good enough that all you get is Apple Music and not everything else. Uh, some evidence to the contrary so far. i oh, really? I've heard huge <laughs> reports. Uh, yeah, it, that, it's a problem. I mean, GoGo faced this. There was. To stream some of the video stuff, you had to have the GoGo Entertainment app, and people wouldn't download it, and then they'd be on a six-hour flight and screaming bloody murder, and so they found a way to say, okay, there's a button here that says download the app, and when you click that button to download the app, they basically gave you five minutes of free internet and hoped that the app downloaded faster. Oh, people would like can't, like do the do reset it. password or something or something like that? Yeah. Like <laughs> and then, so what you do is you do like, oh, download app. Pause the download and yeah, then do yeah. other stuff for <laughs> the, however long your whitelist window was, right. and then it would stop. And you delete the app and you would do it again. I mean, it's it is onerous and annoying, and it's but if you're really that desperate for for free Wi-Fi or you know to get a tweet out, uh, it was a way to sort of make it happen. And every now and then they it's a little bit of cat and mouse. They try to right. stay ahead of the game there, but uh, there were ways. How, how much uh, how much bandwidth do these planes have? On, on, I'm sorry,
0: I'm telling, I'm asking all these questions. Yeah. I'm curious, and and the other guys are probably like, okay, we're done. I want to go do my Sunday. Um, this last last question, I promise. Uh, how much bandwidth do these planes have now? I mean, obviously, um, when I travel, I might have phone, tablet, and a laptop sometimes, uh, sure. and that's not that unique, right? A lot of people have a lot of devices, and the applications are more and more bandwidth intensive. Even if they're not letting you access certain services that might be super big bandwidth hogs, it just seems like the demand for bandwidth on airplanes is going up and up and up. and I don't know enough about the technology and how it sure. works. Is, is it is how, how does it work and is it
1: if you're willing to pay, they can give you the bandwidth. The okay. problem is that the problem today is usually not can we get them enough bandwidth? It's will they pay for it? Uh-huh. It's all satellite based and it happens to be a satellite antenna that's on top of an airplane moving 500 miles an hour through the sky. So, there is some science involved in making that work. Uh, It's pretty complex stuff, but airplanes remain one of the most expensive places in the world to deliver bandwidth. And so, if you want to, you know, you're talking about it's not insanely expensive, but you're still talking pennies per megabyte instead of pennies per gigabyte. It adds up. And it depends on the system, it depends on a lot of things, just how much it costs to deliver those things, to deliver that capacity. But you know the American deal with Apple is clearly a marketing sponsorship, right? It's not just someone decided to be nice and have some fun. <laughs> this is this is a deal where money is changing hands and consideration is being made for delivering it, right? And so, uh, how much bandwidth can you get on a plane? Depending on the satellite system involved, it's as little as two or three megabits per second, uh-huh. up to two hundred and fifty to three hundred megabits per oh. second. Uh, on the newest systems with the newest antennas and the newest satellites.
0: Huh, interesting.
1: So it, it, there is, you know, on the on the good stuff, there really is uh, a lot of bandwidth being made available to the planes, and then it's a matter of they still throttle back individual connections so you don't do something stupid like download the 1.5 gigabyte iOS 12 update right, right. on your phone while you're on the plane, or they hope you don't. Right. Uh, they work really hard to stop that. It's still a... A losing battle for the vendors, usually. Yeah, I'm
0: sure, especially. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that it is. Ah, that's fascinating. Okay, well, thank you for indulging my uh, my okay. questions there. I appreciate I, it.
2: I have one. I have another. One more question, <laughs> uh, Seth. In some of your episodes recently, that I, I mean, I've I've heard that you're you're, and this is getting away from that aviation technology, but sure, but you I mean. you you have said like your sweet spot is like premium economy, flying anywhere. I mean, it, like. Talk talk about that a little more because I, I, like you know sure. I, on this we've been talking a lot about flying up front and in, in business and first um, they have you know okay yes <laughs> Eric and I have and you know we, we tend to kind of be a little uh, bougie uh, in our flight preferences sure. but you 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 don't seem to but you still know the points and miles game inside out I, I would yeah. assume so tell us so- tell us your philosophy tell us your approach and tell us how to you know why why you pursue it the way you do
1: sure. I'm going to ask you a question. How many days a year do you spend away from home traveling?
2: Uh, not th- not as many as you.
1: <laughs> and that's my answer, okay. right? My my problem is I spent 140 nights, I think, away from home last year. Okay. Wow. Um, and that's a problem at many levels. Uh, but one of them is I need to be able to afford to spend that much time away and having that many trips. If I was doing 30 or 40 nights away, it would be pretty easy to get the right credit cards and just buy business class tickets when I needed them and it would be fine. Um, I, I still need to get to those other conferences, need to do these other events and the price adds up. And so my budget requirement means I don't fly business class nearly as much as I wish I could. Okay. Um, and so that, that's the the real answer. Now that said, I also, you know, for especially New England or New York to Europe, it's a six hour flight, depending seven hour flight, depending on where you're going. I mean, I'm going from Boston to via Iceland on an upcoming trip. And that's a five and a half hour flight, I think, if I'm lucky. So, there, there's zero value in business class for me at that point. I can't, I, I can't get eight hours of sleep on a four and a half hour flight. Mm. Doesn't matter what what seat I'm in. ask them so, to slow the plane down. See if they'll do that. Right. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> yeah, just like the trains in China. Right. Um, turns out they won't. They're not nearly as uh, accommodating on that front. Uh, and they're all the pilots like, "Yeah, great tailwinds today, guys." I'm like, "No, go the other direction." Um, so. You know, that's the real reason for me. And so I found that, especially when I can get it on sale, um, premium economy can get super affordable for the high-volume travel I do. Um, if me and my wife are traveling, uh, especially like you see some of these mistake fares, you know, the three or $500 to Australia kind of deal yeah. in coach, and people are like, I'm never going to do that in coach. My answer to that is, you know, especially for two of us, mm-hmm. if I can pay $1,500 to get three seats to for us, And we had a a chunk of three, a whole row to ourselves. Sure. That's actually not a bad deal at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You you make your own... It's a DIY... That's DIY premium economy. I don't need (laughs) the slightly fancier food. And sometimes it's just the same food on a different plate, which is amusing to me. Right, You get the economy (laughs) meal, but you get it on plates instead of in the foil uh, tin. So there's just a lot of different considerations like that end up in my thought process to make it happen. But I'm going to... I think I told you guys I'm flying to Las Vegas so that I can fly to Europe, which is, you know, around your elbow to get to your knees or whatever. It's stupid, but it's what I have to do this week. And my flight from uh, Denver to Frankfurt is actually long enough that I might be able to get a little bit of sleep. And they're doing that bid for upgrade thing. And I think it's $175 is the cheapest bid. So I might put in for that and see if I can do it. But I also got to look at the seat map. If it seems like I might get a whole row to myself in the back of the 747 mm. for free,
2: maybe I'll just do that instead nice nice okay i mean i does that make sense no it makes a lot of sense i i i remember hearing you at conferences and then just like, like what yeah. what's with this guy i don't understand what now know. listen <laughs> if i
1: if i was traveling less so that i could afford to pay a little more for the tickets yeah each time i would right I, I have no problem spending the however many hundreds of thousands of points or thousands of dollars a year on my travels yeah but my overall volume is sufficiently high that i can't do all the trips I want and do them all in premium cabins.
2: Got it. Makes a lot of sense.
1: Last, last
0: question. <laughs> Encore Boston Harbor, you're near Boston. Yes. Thoughts on this project? Excited about it? We've already sort of established that maybe your first love isn't casinos, but um, this is a relatively high profile project that, at least as of now, is still wind
1: Resorts. Um, are you excited about this? Is this a place you'll check out when it opens? I'm sure I will check it out when it opens, um, in large part because I have to assume Traeger will come across from London and he'll make me come down and say hi. <laughs> um, okay. And so that, that'll that happen. Uh, other than that, I really don't care. Fair enough. I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Fair enough. <laughs>
2: All
1: right. Thought I'd ask.
0: We got to... A, yeah? a... No,
1: I, I, honestly, I, I take that back. I, the casino part of it, I certainly don't care about. If they manage to do some interesting things with other entertainment or restaurants or other things... I could probably be convinced to stop by when we're passing through Boston, you know, to or from one of these trips. Um, I, you know, every now and then if we get too early or too late a flight in and out of Boston instead of coming home or starting at home that day, we'll do the hotel the night before or the hotel that night and come home the next day. I could see that being an opportunity to, like, take an extra half day, you know, go down at noon, see the thing for whatever time and then, you go to sleep early, you know, have have a nice dinner and then go to sleep and then wake up and run to the airport at six in the morning or whatever it is. I, I could see myself using it as an opportunity of another different place to do that sort of thing when in Boston. But beyond that, it's not compelling to me. Fair enough.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much for taking time, especially um, on a Sunday to talk to us. I know that I appreciate it. And I think I
2: could speak for uh, these guys too.
1: Th- thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, appreciate you guys' time on a Sunday. I know this
2: is abnormal for you. So, uh, thank you, Seth. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Seth. Yep. Thanks, everybody.